This is the Wealth and Law Podcast, a podcast about the intersection of personal wealth and the legal landscape. We'll take a deep dive into relevant topics. We'll basically teach you what we know, and we'll engage with guests with deep expertise in their field. We hope that you'll enjoy this episode and many more episodes. So please join us on this journey as we try to bring you relevant information that is both timely and important for you to know in order to engage in this area of the world. Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I'm Brent Nelson. Thanks for joining us again. You know, it's just about mid-December 2023. Here we are, and we would ordinarily do sort of a end-of-year, you know, end-of-year planning uh, type episode, which which I've considered doing, but I don't think we're going to do this year. Not because it isn't important, but because it's so late in the year. There's not a whole lot of time left to uh, do any planning. So if you haven't done your end of year planning, you're sort of running up against the clock. And nothing that I say is probably going to fix that. But I'm going to talk about a couple of those planning techniques that could be used by the end of the year that may be important for individuals in in just a second. But I thought I would talk today about a few hot topics because there actually are a few hot topics in tax and in trust planning that have been happening recently and that are worthy of discussion. The first was oral arguments in the the Moore versus United States Supreme Court case. Okay, so what is this case? If you haven't heard of it, this is a tax case. They don't get very many tax cases at the Supreme Court, so when they do get one, of course, it draws a lot of attention in the industry. This one in particular has some issues that could have wide-ranging effect depending on how broadly the Supreme Court is willing to issue a ruling, uh, if it's an affirmative ruling, that is. So in this case, the petitioners were uh, owners of a corporation in India. And when I say corporation, what I mean is it was a foreign entity that was taxable as a corporation in the United States, or we view it as a corporation in the United States. And we have specific rules where we look to see, is it a corporation in our eyes? Because just, you know, it may be in another country and that form of entity in that other country may not have the word corporation in it. And so you have to figure out, was it a corporation or not? In the case, that's not an issue. It was a corporation. In fact, Also not at issue was the fact that it was a controlled foreign corporation. And what had happened to the Moors, which is similar to what had happened to quite a few people, to be perfectly honest, in 2018, is that as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, they were required to pay tax on deferred earnings and profits of the corporation under then-new Section 965. So Section 965 said the following. If you are a U.S. shareholder of a controlled foreign corporation that had accumulated uh, post-1986 earnings and profits, then you had to recognize those accumulated post-1986 earnings and profits in your income in 2018. And roughly speaking, the way that they wrote the rules, there wasn't really a way around it. They made it somewhat retroactive in the way that it captured earnings and profits. Um, So it was a a pretty harsh result for a lot of shareholders, a different result than the way that the law had been with respect to earnings and profits of controlled foreign corporations of certain varieties for quite a while. But it was tied to a regime meant to cause U.S shareholders of controlled foreign corporations to pick up income on the the earnings 
uh, or the earnings and profits that that is of controlled foreign corporations on an annual basis. Okay, so just for a little bit of uh, color to that, it used to be the case pre. 2018 that if the controlled foreign corporation had income in essence from the active con conduct of a trader business in a foreign country that the earnings and profits from that active trader business in the foreign country didn't have to be recognized as income in the year that they were earned and so you could defer when they were later paid out then they would be taxable in the u.s typically as a non-qualified dividend which would of course, be taxed at the highest rates, but um, they could, anyways, those those earnings could be deferred. You wouldn't have to pay tax on those earnings. And if you were an individual shareholder, so not a corporate shareholder, uh, that was quite a good result. There was already a rule, so part F, that said that if the control foreign corporation had passive forms of income, so think rental income, dividend income, interest income, royalty income, those sorts of passive forms of income, that you, the U.S. shareholder, had to pay tax annually on that type of income, even if it wasn't distributed out to you. Okay, so the Moors get hit with this tax under 965 to the tune of something like $13,000. They sue for a refund, they pay it, and then they sue for a refund, and they find their way before the U.S. Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court had oral arguments, uh, and I would say that from the oral arguments, I got the impression that, number one, the petitioners, being the Moors, didn't really have a very strong argument on their side because there are already many different regimes in the tax code that require you, the shareholder, to pay tax on earnings of another entity. Of course, partnership tax is one of those areas where if there is a partnership, the U.S. tax code says that you, the partner, have to pay tax on the income of the partnership even if the partnership doesn't distribute it to you and even though you as the partner don't own the income of the partnership necessarily. Certainly from a state law perspective, that's the case. Also, the code allows you, of course, to elect to have an S-corporation and in that case, the corporation doesn't pay tax. The shareholders pay the tax, generally speaking. And that doesn't that's, does, isn't dependent on whether the corporation distributed any income out to the shareholders. Likewise, like I mentioned, subpart F already says that passive forms of income from controlled foreign corporations are taxable to shareholders. And that wasn't at issue. In fact, the petitioner went out of their way to try to argue that these other code provisions were not at issue and that they were not trying to challenge the constitutionality of these other code provisions that require current year uh, recognition of income. Of course, that's a pretty weak argument because there isn't much distinction between 965 and these other income regimes. And I got the impression from the questions that that the petitioner's counsel received from the justices, that they were on to that issue. And that's not to say, of course, that they couldn't rule in favor of the Moors and make their ruling narrowly tailored to Section 965 and leave everything else intact because Section 965 hasn't existed in the code for a long period of time, like many of these other these other regimes have. And so you never know. I mean, these in these Supreme Court cases, you just never know. But it didn't seem to me like a really great day 
at the courthouse for the Moors. It did not sound to me to be a very positive reception from the justices, at least the ones that were asking questions. And so we'll see. Hopefully, in my mind, the justices do the reasonable thing and they they do not rule in favor of the Moors. I think the case is clearly an overreach by the petitioner. I'm very surprised that it even made it to the Supreme Court in the first place. There have been suggestions that the case is meant really to target a wealth tax more than it is really to target Section 965 because a wealth tax is a tax that requires you to recognize income uh, on, in essence, deferred gains, but basically built-in gains on assets. Okay, well, that's that's a good uh, segue into the next topic because the month before oral arguments, Senator Wyden had reintroduced, and another, you know, him and a collection of other senators who seem to reintroduce these bills with some frequency, like once a year, reintroduced his version of what they call a billionaire's tax. So their idea is that if an individual has income of $100 million or more for three consecutive years, or is worth a billion dollars, for three consecutive years, then they're subject to this billionaire's tax. And the billionaire's tax would require them to mark to market their ownership of liquid assets, say publicly traded stocks and bonds, and then to be subject to, in essence, a deferral regime that is similar to passive foreign investment companies. So the mark to market regime, this has been something that's been proposed many times in the past. It exists in some sen- in some instances already in the code, so they wouldn't necessarily have to break new ground. In fact, in the in the context of passive foreign investment companies, there is a mark to market regime. We talked about that in the last episode. Of course, you can go back and listen to that. You'll you'll be all caught up on PFIX. But there is a mar- there are mark to market regimes in the code already. So they would just say, hey, if you if you exceed these thresholds, you will have to be subject to this mark-to-market regime and pay tax on, on your uh, portfolios. That could be a, I mean, that could be a big tax for some people. You could have someone who is a billionaire and they have a large block of publicly traded stock in one company. Uh, maybe it's a family company, and then that would trigger an acceleration of the gains. In a mark-to-market regime, you also get losses. And it's not clear from the little fact sheet that they put together whether you'd get the losses I don't really bother to read the exact legislation because those things always get negotiated into into some final form anyway, so it's not that important. But I'm more focused on what is the intent? What's the over, overarching intent with this? And that seems to be the overarching intent. They're not clear on exactly how you're going to be able to determine whether somebody has a billion dollars of assets. How do you value those assets, especially if they're illiquid? And does it just create litigation? like with large estate tax uh, or large taxable estates, I should say. The second part of it is this deferral regime that says, okay, if you have illiquid assets, say real estate, and you're over these thresholds, then you're subject to a deferral regime that, that requires when you finally do trigger the gains that you have to pay capital gains and you have to pay an interest charge for your holding period in the asset, just like with the, the normal PFIC regime. And Anybody who owns PFIX or deals with PFIX, this will all sound very familiar to. And if you're not familiar with PFIX, then this will sound like some weird, uh, strange alien planet. But this is a pretty common regime in the international sphere where they're trying to discourage certain activities. 
particularly abroad, and so they have these anti-deferral rules that say if you try to defer your income through PFIX or th through foreign non-grantor trusts in particular, that when you receive the income later, or when you receive the gains later, you get hit with this interest charge. And so it appears that they are dusting off the old code books and rewriting those anti-deferral rules in a way that would apply to billionaires, of course, aimed at dissuading people from accumulating that amount of, of uh, wealth, which I'm certain if they come up with this rule, people will figure out ways to avoid the rules. Uh, they'll figure out ways to avoid the income threshold. They'll figure out ways to avoid the net worth threshold. And I can already think of quite a few uh, charitable ways to do that, in particular that as far as I'm aware, they're not proposing that we get rid of, but that do still allow a wealthy family to retain substantial amounts of wealth while giving money to charity, and the charity can be the family's charity. So let's talk about a few of those. Another hot topic uh, is the fact that interest rates, of course, are going up. The so-called 75-20 rate is 5.8%. That's pretty. It's really pretty middle of the road. Historically speaking, that's not like the highest, but it's not low, uh, and it used to be very low. So within the last year and a half, two years, it was it was much lower, say 2%. And so now we've got another 3.8% on top of what it used to be not too long ago. But the question that comes up is, well, what does that mean? And is it good or is it bad? And we've talked about it a couple times on the podcast in the past, but it just has an effect on the way that you calculate uh, certain types of interests in certain types of instruments. That's really the effect of it. It doesn't doesn't really do much else. It does set a, the seventy five twenty rate does set a benchmark for in essence what the code assumes you can make on your money if you invest your money. That's somewhat the theory I think, or that's an easy way to think about it if you want to think about it that way. But for the most part. Uh, it is only a mechanism used to calculate interests in certain types of vehicles. Otherwise, it's not really an important number. But if you're going to use those vehicles, it, it is important because you need to know what the you need to know what the values are, and then you're going to pick and choose those vehicles not specifically because of the 75-20 rate or not specifically because of the valuation that gets spit out when you do the actuarial calculations using the 75-20 rate, but because of other things other planning objectives and other planning guideposts that you're using to get to a particular place in the planning. Okay, so I want to make that really clear. I think sometimes when we talk about the interest rates, we have a bit of an assumption that the interest rates are driving the planning. That's not necessarily true. It's the outcomes that are driving the planning, and then the interest rate is just a variable in the the equation that is used to calculate the interest in the, in the, ver the various instruments. Okay. But let me give you some idea of how important the interest rates can be in certain types of instruments. So, for example, if you were going to try to do what's called a charitable remainder annuity trust, I don't actually see a lot of these, but they do exist out there in the ether, or CRAT, okay, charitable remainder annuity trust. If you were going to do a charitable remainder annuity trust for, say, spouses, so it's two lives, it's going to last for two lives, and their lives are 62 years old. Under the current environment, using a 5.8% interest rate, that works with a crap. Why does it work? Because it spits out a value for the remainder interest that is more than 10% actuarially on the first day of the trust. 
And that's what you need. There's a rule in the Charitable Remainder Trust rules that says that the charity's interest on day one from an actuarial perspective needs to be at least 10%. If the 7520 rate is 2%, you can't do it with 62-year-olds. These spouses instead at a 2% rate need to be 75 years old before the remainder interest will be worth 10% based off of their life expectancies and using a 2% a 7520 rate. So that interest rate has a big effect, particularly on uh, charitable remainder annuity trusts. It has a much smaller effect on CRUTs. And <clears throat> basically with a CRUT and a 5.8% and a 7520 rate, you're looking for if these are things that are going to last for somebody's lifetime and you have spouses who are 62, so sort of like for like with a crat, you're looking for what is the maximum amount of payout percentage that can be given to them in order to to fit within this 10% rule. And with a with a 5.8% 7520 rate, that's 9.8% roughly. That's, that's the payout, the maximum payout that you can make and still fit within this 10% rule. Uh, Rule. So let's just assume, for example, they put uh, an appreciated asset into the CRUT. The CRUT's going to sell the asset in the future. It's not under contract. doesn't have an LOI, blah, blah, blah. Lots of things that we've already talked about in the past about CRUTs. So go back and listen to past episodes about CRUTs if you want to know. But the idea is that CRUT then can pay out or, or must pay out 9.8% of the value of the CRUT every year to the spouses d- during their joint life expectancies and they can receive that payment. That could be a nice flow of funds, 9.8%, pretty high. They get a 10% charitable income tax deduction for making the CREP, so that's a nice little benefit. So that brings down their taxes in the year, at least the year that they form the CREP, and uh, they get a nice little payout. So you you get these numbers based off the 7520 rates. Is, say, 9.8% so much better than 102 or 3%, which is more aligned with what it would have been at a 2% uh, 7520 rate with a CREP, I don't know. It probably doesn't make a huge amount of difference. And oftentimes, we're either trying to max out these things so we get the smallest charitable income tax deduction with the highest payout, or we're targeting a very specific charitable income tax deduction, and then we just work backwards on the math to figure out what, what payout do we need to get the very, very specific charitable income tax deduction. Okay, another technique that is interest rate sensitive, 7520 rate sensitive, is the grantor retained annuity trust. And with the grantor retained annuity trust, very frequently you put property in the trust. It makes a payout every two every year for two years. And by the end of the two years, if there's anything left over in the in the trust, then that goes to family members tax-free. There's a very famous case, the Walton case, where yes, the Walton of Walmart fame family did one of these grats successfully for a two-year grat. They zeroed it out in essence, and uh, then the treasury had to change the regulations afterwards. It was so successful. And they won in tax court. So it's always good. Sometimes we win in tax court, uh, we taxpayers, we win in tax court, and then they change the rules to be more favorable. Okay, so that's a grat. And the grat payout assumes, of course, under this theory, that the money in the grat is going to grow at 5.8%. And so generally speaking, when the interest rates go up, the payout that has to be paid out of the grat goes up as well. So what does that translate into? Well, with a 2% uh, grat, uh, 2%, sorry, 2%, 7520 rate with a grat, you 
basically do about $97,000 to $98,000 better than with a 5.8% GRAP, okay? So let's call it $98,000 better off with 2% than with a 5.8% 75-20 rate, which is what we have today in, in December 2023. The question is, is it does it matter? And sometimes I hear people say, well, when, when the interest rates are, are high, then you shouldn't do GRATs. GRATs aren't useful anymore. And really the answer to that is GRATs aren't as useful anymore because you, you can't push off as much growth, but that doesn't necessarily paint the full picture. Or I should say they're potentially not as useful because they might not push off as much growth because you have to pay more money back to the grantor. In in our case, say $98,000 more than when the 7520 rate was 2%. But that doesn't mean that it's not a useful technique because the GRAT does well based on volatility. And a 6% volatility, say, over a two-year period, of course, is not that much, especially when you have a, a concentrated position in a stock that's volatile or an asset like Bitcoin that's very volatile over a two-year period. It can be much more volatile than 2% or even 6%. So again, it doesn't mean that grants aren't useful. The other thing is that if you do win, if you do catch the market swing when the market goes up on the asset much more than the 7520 rate, then when the grant is done, you've pushed off all that appreciation. You always start with the premise that the grantor is going to hold that asset regardless. So if they can put that asset into a grant, receive back, in essence, the value of what they put in plus the 7520 rate, and shave off any other appreciation, then you've taken somebody who's, let's just assume that they're they could have or they do have an estate tax issue. You've taken an asset that has high volatility and you turned it into an asset that has fairly low volatility because you already know how much money is going to get paid back to them. And then you've shaved off all the upside on the volatility and you've given that to family. So that's a good result. That's a, That can be a handy technique. You can do a similar thing with loans. You can do a similar thing with uh, charitable lead annuity trusts because they, they function very similarly to grants, although they're usually long-term. And so Again, you use the interest rates not you, you do the te- you do the planning not because of the interest rates you do the planning and the interest rate is a component in valuing the interests in the instruments that you're using for the planning but the planning purpose is different from the interest rate the interest rate just informs the calculation but you do the planning for all sorts of other reasons okay a couple of other things I, I just want to kind of remind people that you cannot guess about what somebody else's tax liability is. And I'm saying this because fairly recently, um, there was a baseball contract. If you're into baseball, then you know the contract that I'm talking about, where a player was awarded a 10-year, $700 million contract. If you're not into baseball, it doesn't matter who the player is. Just know that a player got awarded a 10-year, $700 million contract. The player is going to play in Los Angeles for the LA Dodgers. And there was all kinds of speculation uh, on the interwebs about what his uh, tax bill would be and his net take-home pay would be on this contract because, of course, he lives in California, which is one of the more high-tax jurisdictions in the United States. You cannot know. Well, and a lot of it was being presented as if it was facts. Like, this is going to be his bottom line. You cannot know what anybody's bottom line is going to be. You could present it as an interesting use case with, uh, with plenty of caveats of, like, you know, assuming... This is all of his income. It gets paid directly to him every year. He has no other offsetting deductions. 
he you know doesn't invest in anything that throws off any deductions which i don't know about you but very very high uh earning people that i know of they invest in things that do throw off they do throw off deductions they do throw off deductions and they know where to find the deductions it's not like they're hidden so but if you just assume on its face taking nothing else into account then yeah maybe you could with certain assumptions calculate what the bottom line number is but that's probably not going to be his bottom line number you just don't know you have no idea you have no clue what uh his what his tax rate is going to be the other thing that um i wanted to mention was that there is a tendency to see what other people do with their planning or for people to sort of trumpet what they do with their planning and then to assume that that is what you should do for yourself that's not really the case. You know, you really need to analyze every situation for yourself. You need to analyze every situation for your clients. Don't assume that what somebody else did is exactly what you should do somewhat for the same reason as the reason that you can't know what somebody's tax liability is because you don't have all the facts and you really have to focus on your very, very specific facts. Unfortunately, although it's fun to pretend that things are simple and can be broken down into simple terms with simple outcomes and simple techniques. That is not the way it works in the real world. The real world is very complex with many nuances and many factors and unique sets of circumstances that vary from one person to the next among the 8 billion people that we have on this beautiful planet. And so you cannot ever assume that what worked for somebody else is going to work perfectly for you. And I had a, uh, I've had this come up where I've had clients who did one thing and they had friends who became clients, and those fr- they had told the friends the technique that they had done. The friends told me they wanted to do the same thing, and they were disappointed when I had to explain to them that they're in a different set of circumstances and they can't do it because they were convinced that they could do it, and you just can't do that. Somewhat uh, related to that, I would say. I don't know if this is really a hot topic, so maybe I've gone off. Uh, I've gone off the trail here, but if you would just indulge me for a second, the other thing is that. Even when you're dealing with something that seems normal, seems conventional, even things that you've done many times in the past, you should always try to view that with fresh eyes and always try to analyze it with fresh eyes because your own built-in assumptions or the assumptions of others might not in fact be true. And I find this with some frequency. There are some techniques or some ideas about some planning techniques where it's assumed that the outcome is a certain way. And when I sit down and start looking at it, I don't find the support that people say is there or not the level of support that people say is there for the outcome that they're suggesting you should get. Now, that's not to say that they're wrong that you should get that outcome or that I don't want to be able to get that outcome for a client. It's just that the level of support maybe isn't there or there may, might not be any support for it at all, and it's just speculation. So, you, but you have to not—you have to not just accept the assumption, and you have to really review everything with fresh eyes. Even things that you have you have done many times in the past, you know, force yourself to sit down, read it again, review it, uh, reconsider it. And I do this all the time. It can be. Uh, it can be a little bit frustrating because it means that the thing that I'm trying to do is going to take a little more time than I wish it did. I wish I could just like snap a finger and make it happen. Uh, but it, it isn't really possible, again, in this beautiful but very complex, multi-factor, variable world that we live in with the other 8 billion people on the planet. So, all right, that's it for today. Thank you so much, uh, as usual, for listening. Hopefully you found some value in this episode. 
If you did or did not, you can just give me your comments. Happy to hear them. uh, And I will see you next time. Hey, listeners, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. It's fun to do it for you. If you're enjoying it, please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to my blog at wealthandlaw.com and follow me on social media at wealthandlaw. I'll see you there.